So, uh, yeah, before we get into the actual game itself, talk to me about the team. Talk to me about kind of your personal background and development and kind of what led up to this specific project. I've been in the software engineering space for over a decade. My team is uh, working on the game mostly through contractors and they've all joined the uh, game when we decided to take it more seriously, more commercially over the past year and a half, two years. Uh, we have a team of map developers, a team of writers, a team of game designers and a team of artists uh, that all contribute in different ways to the project as a whole. So you have a fairly big team then, it sounds like. Uh, we have a bit bigger of a team than is needed, but we are an MMO and MMOs, as people rightly say, cannot be done by a single person on a tiny budget. Yeah. So even though we're an indie studio with a limited amount of resources, we do have a lot of people contributing to the project, if not all full time. What's this game built on? Is it is it Unity, I'm assuming, or is it Unreal, or are you guys branching uh, like Godot, kind of what's that? As part of the nostalgic case, we thought it was very important to make sure that we could get it into the hands of people as quickly and as easily as possible. So a lot of engines have a lot of overhead. For example, if you want to download an Unreal game, you have to download it, install it, uh, get all the assets and things like that. Uh, we were targeting a very easy to play a web audience. So we were targeting the browser. And as part of that, we were using browser technologies to build the game. That doesn't preclude the case of uh, building a standalone client. In fact, we're launching on Steam as well. But it uh, does mean that if we want to use browser technologies, we want to use the most performant things we can, since uh, when you're running in a browser, you don't have access to a lot of the most powerful things that a computer can do. Go into that in some more detail for me, actually, because that's much more unique than a standard any developer to kind of talk to me in more detail on how that's different from kind of these other engines we're talking about. You build the game with the components that you want and for the target that you want. Uh, we wanted to make sure that it was something that we could get to people as quickly as possible. So the simplest way to release something these days is it's to just make a website. Anyone who can go to the website can go in and start playing immediately. That's the experience that really can't be beat in terms of distribution. I guess with something like Steam, you kind of have a built-in audience, right? So are you concerned about mm -hmm. that with this game or no? Marketing is very difficult and we are very concerned about making sure that we establish a good community. And right now our focus is to basically figure out a way for us to develop on a regular basis mm -hmm. uh, incrementally and build up the community as they actually start playing the game, as people start telling their friends about it, as it grows naturally and organically, rather than most MMO strategies these days try to build up a significant burst of impact on day one and then really quickly fall into nothingness over the next couple of months. That's generally been the industry pattern of MMO releases over the past couple of years, yeah. uh, with some notable exceptions, and we don't want to follow that approach. With the development side of things, what are the limitations when you're trying to develop it specifically for, I guess, browser base as opposed to building it for something like Steam? I know you said you, you're looking at that as a potential down the road, but are there limitations right now with what you can and can't do when you're creating this game? It's more of a limitation on the actual execution in the browser side than the Steam side. So for the Steam Next Fest a couple uh, months ago, we did launch a Steam demo that I believe a couple thousand people wishlisted uh, during the time and they all got to play it and test it out. The client is self-contained, it does work on Steam. The limitations that we have to uh, work with are very similar to the limitations that mobile developers have to work with, where you're basically targeting a underpowered hardware with slightly less developed APIs uh, than fully-fledged. Uh, applications that run on your computer. So things like uh, dealing with WebGL, dealing with browser-based rendering, uh, dealing with single-threaded execution, all of those are things that we have to consider when building the game. Uh, it basically means that we have to optimize a significant amount and we cannot do too many graphically impressive functionalities like the Unreal Engine would let us do. We are trying to build a game that is nostalgic to audiences that played games 20 years ago and there's not much need for graphical fidelity or pushing through thousands of polygons at the same time in order to achieve those goals. And that's what drove kind of your artistic choice when you were making this game, is you wanted to kind of cater to that, you know, audience from, from those nostalgic games, and you kind of wanted to keep the graphic style more, I don't know, 
let's say genuine, but I guess more simplistic. That way it kind of has that transferability. When we were trying to develop a quick pitch to try to tell people what this game is about and what Genvenad is giving them, we basically broke it down into four components. Uh, and one of the big ones is nostalgia. So nostalgia is something that is a strong force uh, that really gets people's eyes on something, but it doesn't carry a game by itself. Uh, but from the nostalgia aspect, we definitely wanted to keep the cartoony graphics, the bright colors, the uh, hand-drawn 2D characters rather than uh, low-poly models. Or I personally think that hand-drawn, like if you look at a little goblin that is hand-drawn and an artist can go in and give it lots of different little tweaks that are very simple uh, from an art perspective to just draw. Like if you want to give it a buck tooth or if you want to give him a little crown, it's very easy to do that when you're dealing with sprite sheets and art. Whereas when you're dealing with models, trying to actually create something that looks good at all of those resolutions and then animate it through that, it's a different process that is more difficult. Both approaches have their pros and cons, but from an art perspective, I personally prefer the look of the sprites. So with that in mind, your character design, you said it's all hand-drawn, correct? So you're not using like ZBrush or Blender or anything like that? We had different artists contribute different parts of the content. Uh, so what we've ended up developing is a 2D all-like skeletal animation. We used uh, the Spine software to do that, which is basically skeleton of all of the characters and then different items that the player Clips just uh, take into account by loading a different texture. Uh, okay. So for example, if, you, if we draw a new shirt, all we have to do is draw a little shirt image, and then it works with all of the different animations that we have for the character already. This is an MMORPG. We briefly touched on the team size. It is larger than your standard indie game. But even with that being said, I think starting off with an MMORPG, even with, you know, you'd mentioned you have an extensive amount of uh, experience as a programmer, but it's still a pretty large project to take on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in terms of gameplay, multiplayer, you know, there's, there's a lot of layers to that. So why start with that as opposed to, you know, something a somewhat more simplistic? So there's two ways of looking at uh, that answer. The first way is this is the first commercial project uh, that I'm that our studio is running, uh, but it's not the first project that I'm running and the first project that I'm on for a significant amount of time. From a commercial perspective, the fact that you mentioned platformers are oversaturated and very few indie studios are making MMOs, that's an opportunity. That's a way for us to stand out amongst the sea of other indie games that are being released all the time. Like, for example, the metric that was used is Steam has 6 to 10 uh, indie games releasing every single day. In order to stand out, you can't be building something that everyone else is building. But from a creative perspective, from a this is a passion project for me uh, perspective, it wasn't calculated. Uh, the process of starting this project and back when I was a solo developer working on it was basically I was experimenting with web technologies just to try just to see how they have come across since uh, I last worked on them back over a decade ago. And I was very impressed by the status of browser-based web technologies. I was able to spin up and get a multiplayer chat application up and running within an hour or two, where the same project that I tried to do, that I tried to build uh, a decade ago, took me multiple weeks of actual end-to-end -end development before yeah. it was anywhere near usable. And since the pad application was so easy, I, and I tried building another smaller scale multiplayer game. Like if you're familiar with there was a trend a couple of years back of all the IO games where you just jump in and there's all of these hundreds of people playing at the same time that were tiny games, but very interesting because they were multiplayer and you were playing with real people yeah. all the time. I ended up building a, one of those for myself just to prove that I could. Uh, it was a Pudge Wars equivalent uh, where you walked around and you tried to throw your hooks at other people and try to kill them instantly. That only took me a week or two, uh, where before it would have taken months of development. Uh, so I got a bit overconfident and was like, what did I like playing as a kid? Well, these guys in 2001, three people in a garage managed to make an MMO from scratch. How hard can it be? And here I am two and a half years later yeah. and I realized, yeah, it's still hard. One of the biggest learnings that I had is basically the fact that any individual thing that you build is easier. But an MMO consists of so many different components, so many different things, and all of those things have to work together seamlessly. So even if any individual thing that you're building is easy, you still are signing yourself up for a lot of work. Would a browser-based uh, development cycle have more flexibility or less than kind of something you're building within an engine? It, it would have to be more, correct? Or am I wrong there? From my perspective, the choice of whether to use an engine or not is really 
orthogonal to your development style to how the game ends up being built uh, up as a whole. In most cases, and if anyone's listening to this and they're interested in going into game development and they're interested in building their own game, the choice should be use an engine. Uh, it is, it absolutely provides you a lot of technologies, a lot of tools that you would not be able to do. For example, Unity has hundreds of engineers working on the Unity engine as a whole. There is no way one person can do everything that those hundreds of engineers are putting in work every single day to make Unity better. Similarly for Unreal, similarly for Godot. We chose a different path because that's what the requirements, that's what the goals that we were trying to hit were. The most new developers, I would absolutely recommend using an engine. Branching out into the game itself, right? Kind of talk to me about mm -hmm. the game world in, in Gen Fan Ad. So talk to me about the world it takes place in, kind of the different environments. The nostalgic frame that we started building the game around uh, was basically a let's recreate this game from 20 years ago with modern technologies, with modern uh, gameplay mechanics, with everything we basically learned in the last 20 years. Let's apply that, but let's build the same game that existed back then. That's where the project started from. And of course, it evolved over time. The nostalgia aspect is important for getting the first look, but it's not really the purpose of the game. Trying to describe what Genfinite is, it's basically a relaxing, uh, grindy type experience where you log in uh, whenever you want uh, for as little or as long as possible and you can make progress towards what you're trying to do. Okay. You can go in and cut a few trees and your character levels up and you get some progress to whichever goals you're setting. We're trying very much not to fall into the trap of traditional MMOs. Our goal is not to attract the people who are already happy with the MMOs that they're playing today, yeah. because that's not a successful marketing strategy. You don't want to build something that already exists and just make more of it. We're trying to attract the people who wouldn't otherwise look at MMOs because of whatever perceptions they have of the MMO player base or the MMO experience, but also because they might not have even imagined that an MMO is something that they would want to enjoy. So like, uh, there's a lot of casual games in the past, uh, such uh, that attracted audiences that wouldn't really consider themselves gamers. Uh, back in 2010, there was Farmville, uh, which was a Facebook game that I'm sure many people are familiar with. It had such a large audience of people who don't normal, normally play games. And the casual market has actually expanded significantly over time. And even more recent games like Animal Crossing New Leaf have tracked a significant amount of uh, players who don't necessarily consider themselves gamers. And we're basically trying to do that for the MMO space. We're taking the mechanics and the interesting parts of the MMO genre, like it's a multiplayer game. You can see other people walking around. You can talk to other people. You can play together or you can play solo. Trying to figure out what parts of that are for and what parts of that do we not want. So some of the parts that we know we don't want are forced multiplayer or forced daily mechanics uh, or quotas. Like for example, one of the issues that I personally dislike about the World of Warcraft design is that they're they have a very significant focus on late game rates and multiplayer content. Yeah. And that's not something that I personally enjoy. What we're looking for is we're looking for something that players can play whenever they want for as long as they want and still feel like they're making progress, like they're achieving what they want, like they're relaxing. The anecdote I always tell is uh, when I was starting to develop the game, uh, this was back when I was a solo developer two years ago. There was nothing really in place. There's a little character walking around in a little, little world. And I implemented the logging skill, which was the ability to cut down trees. And I found myself just sitting back and clicking the trees, hearing the thunk and watching uh, it turn into a stump. Yeah. Because we don't really have animations in our game. It's just, and the tree is now a stump. Yeah, okay. And I found myself just doing it. I was supposed to be coding. There was no reason to cut the trees. There, the XP wasn't real, the, I wasn't getting any real items, I wasn't making any progression, it was just a developer server. Yeah. But I still found myself just sitting back and mindlessly clicking treats. And that's how I knew that the gameplay loop that existed 20 years ago is still valid today. Yeah. People are still looking for a getaway from life and they're still looking to do something that relaxes them, that they could do whenever they want, that doesn't ask much of them and doesn't give much either. You know, with this game, you know, you're saying people can come in at any time. They can, you know, they can chop down some trees or maybe talk to some people or kind of just walk around and relax. You know, it's, it's meant to be this relaxing experience. I know, you like you said, you're not trying to target people who are satisfied with, you know, these triple AAA MMORPGs. However, with that in mind, does this game have any kind of story to it outside of this just like, you know, this relaxing experience? Does it have 
a sense of overall, I don't want to say leveling because I don't think that's the right word, but like achievement maybe would be the right way to describe it. Um, talk to me about that a little bit. Uh, so that's definitely something that we've been looking at uh, to try to figure out the best approach, the best way to make people want to immerse themselves in this relaxing thing. Yeah. So when I mentioned the nostalgic roots, that's where the game started. And as the game evolved, as we continued building it, we figured out what we wanted the game to be, and we're still trying to basically make it that. Uh, one of the most important things for us as developers is to make sure that we are preserving the concept of novelty, of excitement, of exploration uh, to developers. When we built the game design document for this game from the very beginning, there were two concepts, nostalgia and exploration. The nostalgia part is obvious, but the exploration part is basically you want to make sure that the players get the feeling of seeing something new and they get that feeling on a regular basis. So one of the things that we were building towards from the beginning is the concept of weekly updates, weekly hand-designed, hand-implemented content that players, when they come back to the game, after not playing it for a week or two weeks or a month, they always see something that is completely different to what they were doing before. Whether that be a new area that's released, whether that be a new skill, whether that be a few new recipes for the skill that they have already learned, or whether that be a completely new skill that they can develop from scratch. And of course, written quest content is kind of the sprinkles on top where a fully designed questing experience is not is never going to be the majority of the gameplay that a game like this follows. But it's definitely something to break up and to make the leveling that you're doing, the achievements that you're doing, matter a bit more. And we've been moving all of the story and all of the different character interactions and the writing into the quest elements. Okay. So you might spend a few hours cutting some trees and then eventually you realize, oh, there's this druid over here that uh, is looking for an experienced tree cutter to solve some problem for him. And then you would play the game with uh, basically, it's kind of adventure game mechanics like where you go around, you talk to people, you solve puzzles, you use items, uh, you make items, you craft items, you interact with the world, solve whichever problems that the characters have. And that content actually breaks up and uh, makes you feel like you're doing something in the game that's not just the relaxing uh, aspect of it. Of course, this content is optional. Players can completely choose to ignore every single quest in the game and just click trees for 100 hours if they so choose. We want the ability to have all of the systems interact with each other yeah. and give people more and more reasons to do certain things. You know, kind of circling all the way back to the first question we had, but taking into account what you were talking about just now, where you're saying that you're going to be doing these different updates as as the weeks huh? progress for the game. So some of those potentially would be like different environments that are going to be introduced, kind of expanding huh? on that map. Um, with this game, what is kind of the challenge in developing the environment for this game first and then making it so you can constantly be adding all this other stuff on top of that kind of in software development there's this uh long debate of waterfall type strategies versus agile type approaches where uh basically one side is saying let's figure out everything we want to make and plan it yeah uh, and then and then build it and deliver it other part the other side of it thinks okay so what do we want to do in the next week let's plan that week, deliver it, and then plan the next week after that. So you can, in theory, react to things more quickly if you're using the latter approach. Yeah. Uh, so very similarly, we actually are not planning out the whole, what are we going to deliver in the next five years? Uh, we're actually thinking more in terms of how are we going to expand the game in the first week, in the second week, in the first month, in the second month, in the third month, and so on. So we're actually trying to build up the game from the individual components rather than trying to plan out everything that we're going to build from the get-go. And as part of that, we are basically thinking of all of the different areas, all of the different aspects of content development for the game, of course, engine development. And we're figuring out how long does it take to build a new monster art? How long does it take to build a new item that you can equip? How long does it take to build a new, a new skill with recipes that we want to use? And then we're using that information to try to figure out, okay, what, are, what is going to happen on the first week? What are we going to release on the second week? Uh, we did that process for the beta. Uh, we're currently in a closed beta. Uh, by the time this interview goes live, the beta will probably be done. Yeah. But our team is basically working on building out one update per week 
and preparing the content ahead of time so that we can keep delivering those things. And as part of that, it's building the tools and the techniques and the understanding in the team of how to build content such that it doesn't start interfering with everything else. Uh, and that's something that uh, I think you asked earlier about what is our advantage over uh, other AAA studios. Yeah. We're a small, scrappy indie studio. We can react to things quicker than a large uh, corporation would. The value proposition of Genfinod is it's a game that is interesting to play that has lots of things to do. Even if you're not happy with the things that are there, or even if you want more, don't worry. Every week there's going to be something more. Is there a concern for you when you're making this game where you wonder if in an MMORPG market, if it will get the same traction that you're anticipating or it might get kind of overrun by those over project, other projects? Kind of where's, where's your mindset with that? The question is whether, whether players today like the same things that they liked 20 years ago. Uh, the answer is we don't necessarily know. All we could do is we can release and publicize and uh, build a good game. And then if players react well to that, then the game will grow and will take off. And if they don't, well, they don't. With what you'd mentioned, with the two different approaches um, when you're developing a game, you plan it week by week or you plan it all out and then you deliver it. I think the form, I think planning it all out and then delivering the title, it would give you, I think it gives you kind of an out almost because if the game, and I'm not by any means saying this about your game, but I think with developers, when they release their game, say it misses, and they're like, all right, well, we don't have content planned, so it doesn't matter. We can just pivot and move on. As opposed to say, you have those updates planned and all of a sudden you're locked in for you know X amount of time or whatever. So I think it's it's a commitment, right? That's not really a question, I guess. That's more of just kind of an observation. But It's a different way of thinking about it. There's a lot of... You mentioned that if you're building a single game, uh, you can move on to a different game really easily. But the fact is, uh, building a game is a pretty big commitment. Yeah. Some player, some developers take multiple years to build something. And if you build something and it fails, you basically are not getting that investment back. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're building a live service and you realize, oh, it's trending in the wrong direction, you can actually change things. Uh, you can actually adapt to what people are saying who are playing what you're building. And you can adapt to that. So I don't know whether Genfinad will be a successful game. I know that uh, there's a lot of people who are excited to see what it turns into. If we deliver on the promises that players are seeing in it, if we are building something that people want and that people react positively to, it can grow. Does So kind of moving into more of the player experience, is this game going to have like a central hub? Is it going to have... Or is it not going to have a central hub of, of a sort where players kind of spawn slash log in? Is it going to have a single player mode completely separate from, I guess, single player mode probably would not make sense for what you're creating. But is that some, is that a possibility or no? What we're building is we're basically building a sandbox yeah. uh, with all sorts of mechanics and updates. And then uh, as time goes on, we're going to be expanding that sandbox. Mm -hmm. The beta period started with a small uh, segment of the map that was uh, we measure things in map segments, which are 128 by 128 tiles. Yeah. Uh, and basically when it started, we basically had four of those segments, which included a small town, the tutorial area, a uh, pair of twin cities, a dungeon, and five or six different quests that a player could do. And as the beta comes along, as every week of updates happens, we actually slowly expand that area. So one week we added a dark forest to the west of the map, which added two new segments. And we went to the south and we're releasing the Wizard of Oz quest, which is more of a parody uh, and a, a way of taking other inspirations and building them into a merged world that we enjoy. Okay. But basically, as time goes on, as the updates are happening, we expand the map over time. And sometimes the map segments that we're building have new cities, new places for players to gather. Sometimes they have new dungeons. Sometimes they have new locations. And sometimes... They change theme entirely. The starting area is part of the generic fantasy, the fairy tale type vibe of knights, wizards, rats, slimes, things like that. But when you move to the east, there's going to be a large Halloween themed area of monsters, of vampires, of zombies, of mad scientists. Oh and then God. to the west, there's going to be the uh, large forest and the wizards uh, type themed content, which is kind of our play on combination of 
a Harry Potter type school and the uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Duel Academy where wizards use trading cards to fling spells at other players. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, and then we are basically thinking of it in terms of themes. So the first continent of Nublandia is basically fully designed conceptually and actually mostly implemented. A large part of the mapped segments are already complete and we're catching up on that with other pieces of content. So as we build new skills, as we build new NPCs, as we build new quests to fill up that space. You know, with games as a service, I think people can get a little bit wary of getting into something like that. Because I think when you think games as a service, you think of, I'm not going to name any names because I I don't think that's appropriate, but... um, You know, you think of like where you buy the initial game and then all of a sudden it's like this domino effect where just like you keep going down this rabbit hole and it becomes, I don't It's just, it's a process that a lot of gamers kind of want to steer away from, I think. Um, so with you, when you approach this as a game, as a service, kind of how, how do you approach it? What's your take on that? I feel like, you know, just based off how you're approaching the development of this game, that's something that you approach very differently than... I, I would mm-hmm. say a AAA title would, but kind of walk me through that one. Uh, so first off, we are very uh, careful that we do not want to double dip. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want people playing, uh, paying for the game and then paying for a subscription and then paying for every single item. And a lot of those mechanics are very exploitative and we want to avoid them and pull them out of the game. Mm-hmm. We're never going to do NFTs or crypto uh, because we're building a game. We're not building an investment platform. Yeah. That's just something I want to state flat out. But in terms of actual player engagement. Uh, We want to make sure that players get access to all of the content that they want for a a small monthly subscription. And you pay the monthly subscription and then you get everything you want. That's the monetization model that we feel is fairest Mm -hmm. to the player base as a whole and is uh, the most reasonable. Uh, If our game succeeds, that would pay the salaries of all of the team involved and that would be the end of the story. There are a lot of questions about whether we want to monetize um, things like cash shops and cosmetics and things are double-edged sword in that there are players who really, really enjoy those and really love the ability to be able to customize their character and to buy uh, different items that they wouldn't be able to uh, obtain otherwise. Yeah. There's other issues in that the other side of the coin is that you don't want players to feel like someone else has just paid money and has gotten an advantage over them. Yeah, the whole pay-to-pay and thing. Exactly. We want to make sure that you never get a in-game advantage for paying money. And that's one of the guiding principles. But we don't actually have a story. We don't actually have a final answer as to what we're going to be doing. Mm. But the basics, we're going to launch with a basic subscription and we'll see how that goes. With the story itself, I guess we already touched on the fact that, you know, you have those side quests. The side quests themselves, though, it is multiplayer based. Is it something you can do as like, I guess, create a party and then go do it? Kind of how does how does all of that dynamic work in this game where you're playing in this world with other people that are going to be playing it at the exact same time? So kind of how do you approach that and how does that work? Uh, today, it's more of a single player together, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, so the quests are designed as single player content where the player is the person doing the quest. And if another person talks to the same NPC, they're treated as independent gotcha. entities, basically. Okay. That's not to say our engine limits us to do that. Uh, we can build multiplayer experiences, but one of the things that is core to the expectations that we're setting is that players can choose what they want to do and choose how they want to do it. And forcing people into multiplayer content or forcing them to do something that they don't want to do just to get a reward is not the way we want to do things. If we build multiplayer content, we want to build that content so that players choose to opt into it. They are interested in what we're what they're doing it for and are and want to find other players to do things with. If two players want to do a quest together, there's absolutely nothing stopping them. They can can both do the same interactions. They can walk around together. They can uh, protect them, protect each other from any monsters that they have to fight as part of that quest. Things like that. If someone wants to do a quest by themselves, they can do that as well. So, with that in mind, talk to me about kind of the core gameplay and combat, right? So, how does that kind of evolve as players progress? Kind of how does it change as you implement these different upgrades? Kind of how would you anticipate that to kind of evolve over time? And kind of where's the base model start at for you? Uh, so, the base model is actually very simple uh, by design. Uh, where that's one of the parts that we're taking very wholeheartedly from uh, one of our inspiration games. That's basically when a player 
fights a monster in melee combat. It's a very abstract thing. The player goes uh, to the monster tile. They, when they reach the same tile, combat starts. And the combat is basically a Final Fantasy-style uh, side view in the 3D world, which looks very wonky, uh, where the players just kind of take turns hitting each other mm. and little damage icons pop up. So, whack, <laughs> you deal the goblin three damage. Yep. Okay. Whack, the goblin deals you one damage. Whack, you deal the goblin three damage. The goblin dies, disappears, and little items pop up at the bottom, which is the loot that you get. Mm. That's the part that's definitely the most appealing to retro gamers and potentially not appealing to modern gamers. But that's that's where we're going. That's one of the retro inspirations. That's one of the things that we're keeping. It's strictly, um, strictly turn-based, or will there be some kind of deviations from that? Um, it's completely hands-off, basically. So uh, when you attack the goblin, uh, the damage starts happening uh, in real time. Mm. The player can take certain actions in combat, like running away. That's basically all you can do. Uh, you click the goblin, and then you see the result of the combat, basically. Gotcha. Okay. From that very simple interface, from that very simple activity that the player does. So the interaction with combat is you click the goblin, the player goes to the goblin, they fight, and the goblin dies, presumably. That's very simple. That's very uh, easy to learn, easy to understand, easy to interact with. However, under the covers, a lot of things are happening, of course. It's how much damage are you taking? How much damage are you dealing? Uh, what are your weapon stats? What are your equipment stats? Where are the gob- what is the goblin wearing? What is the goblin stats? How did you prepare for the fight? Did you use some potions? Did you prepare a buff that gives you extra strength? Did you go to it in an area where things are more dangerous? Or uh, things like that. Basically, there's a lot of modifiers to that very simple combat style that give people who are interested in the optimization side of things, in the uh, leveling up side of things, uh, the ability to dig in and understand from an expansion perspective, Mm -hmm. of course, higher numbers are better. So you can always take your sword and you can go and upgrade it. Or you can find a better quality sword uh, somewhere else and it gives you the ability to deal more damage. Or you equip some better armor and all of a sudden, the goblin is dealing less damage to you. Is there like a crafting system in this game, or is that not part of it? The goal of this game is to let people do what they want, basically. And one of the things that always bothered me about some games is that the combat systems were basically fully fleshed out, but the crafting systems were more of an afterthought that were added uh, that didn't have as much content, as much interesting things that could be done. Yeah. Of course, combat is something that has the element of risk, has the element of randomness, has the element of reward that makes it very difficult to design other combat lo- or other game loops that are as interesting, that are as deep, that are as fulfilling as the combat loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are taking a crack at it. Uh, so one of the uh, earliest crafting systems in the game that we built was the uh, forging skill, the ability to sm- uh, smelt metals and make items out of it basically looked at the combat loops of many games and we asked ourselves what are the lessons that we can learn to make the crafting system more interesting so one of the things that we took was we want to make things easy to perform we don't want to have a skill barrier in the game where you can imagine a blacksmithing system where you have to hold the mouse and actually trace the little sword icon and the better you trace it the the better the sword you make is and we didn't want to have anything where player execution, player skill actually impacted it. We wanted it to be more of a thinking uh, approach where the more the player learns and the uh, more that they try and iterate on things, the better they become. So, for example, uh, in other games, you can take a metal bar, take it to an anvil, and turn it into a sword. Mm -hmm. And that's basically hands-off. You click it, and the sword happens. And maybe there's some randomness where your skill impacts what numbers the sword has. We actually wanted to expand that and make it a bit more interactive for players. So instead, you take the metal bar and you take it to an anvil and then you craft a pommel. And then you craft a sheet of metal. And then you bend the sheet of metal into a blade. And then you combine that with a pommel. And eventually you get a sword out of it. Uh, So it's still the same interactions that the player is doing where they go to an anvil and they click some buttons and they make some items. But the player actually has to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And one of the best things that came out of this model is that we have quality indicators for all of the different items. They could be low quality, medium quality, or high quality. Then each of the different transformations that the player performs actually lets them 
potentially make a high quality version of whatever they're trying to do. And any individual step is easy to make a high quality sheet metal, for example. Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually making that final high quality iron sword, that's a very difficult and very momentous occasion. So there's an element, we brought back the element of risk and reward into the crafting systems as well. Players have been responding positively to the crafting system. And we want to take that same concept, that same design, and not exactly uh, replicate it, but use those inspirations to build all sorts of ga other game loops that are equivalent to and orthogonal from combat. Uh, when I mentioned the concept of a sandbox, we're basically using the framework of the game, which is uh, you have items, you have uh, resources that you can get from nodes, yeah. you can use crafting skills to transform them, uh, you can use combat to kill uh, monsters, and then there's a few different support skills. And those four categories are basically the categories that we are thinking of expanding and we, ha we have about 17 different skills in the game. Uh, that includes things like combat skills like attack and strength and defense. Uh, it includes gathering skills like uh, mining, like logging, uh, like butchery. It includes processing skills like building, uh, like tailoring, like uh, forging, like cooking. Uh, but we also have plans for many, many more skills, some of which are more fleshed out than others. Players always ask us about a fishing skill, and of course we have a skill plan for fishing, uh, which is going to water and gathering different types of fish or things that live in the water. Uh, and we have some more esoteric skills, like, like bounty hunter, like uh, treasure hunting, and like uh, deception and dexterity, and all sorts of different things uh, that we can build in the framework that we're building in the future. We have drafts for about 30, 32 different, 32 different skills total. Oh, wow. Okay. Would you say you're implementing small areas with a very in-depth amount of interaction within those? And then over time, that just keeps getting builded upon and builded upon to create this, this pretty large-scale world? Is that kind of the approach? Uh, the approach is if we start out with something small and self-contained and then we build things over time, the things that we build are going to have a good enough quality just yeah. because more time is put into it. Uh, but also what, what we're doing is when I mentioned that our goal uh, for Gentonaut, our unique value proposition is the weekly updates. That means uh, every single time we build a feature, we ask ourselves, how is this going to help make us make weekly updates faster, better, or how is it going to impede us from delivering those weekly updates? So for example, we can build a feature that seems that uh, every monster in the game has full animations or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that's a feature that would increase the cost of creating monsters and make it more difficult for us to do that in the future. Yeah. So we would strongly weigh that weigh against making that feature. Whereas if we make a feature that's self-contained, that's a skill that only happens for these amounts of things, that's something that we can continue doing for a, for a long amount of time. So that's something that we would continue pursuing. Okay. Essentially, the whole concept of think. Think smarter, not harder. I, I get that. Exactly. Uh, and think, so for example, uh, from a coding perspective, this might be interesting for some of yours. So when you think about building a game with a fishing skill and a mining skill, uh, some approaches to coding are uh, simply, okay, let's write some code that uh, goes to water and that different fish. And then let's write some different code that makes the rocks and you extract the ore. We actually thought of it uh, more holistically and we figured out, okay, so all of all of the gathering skills uh, that we want to make, they all go to a node in the world, it's a scenery node, and they all produce a set of items and they have a modifier of specific tools and specific things that can be done to change how that works. And since we knew for a fact that we are going to have more gathering skills in the future, we actually ourselves what are all of the different ways that gathering skills could work and when we coded it we didn't code a fishing system and a mining system and a logging system we built a gathering system and whenever our game designer wants to build a new gathering skill they don't have to change the engine to do that they just have to change some of the files that some of the json files that exist to modify how the game runs we've separated the engine of how the mmo works from the content 
the content is significantly smaller and significantly simpler than the engine. I don't like doing it in the industry, but I feel like everybody kind of ends up doing it ultimately is they start drawing parallels to other games. And as we've been talking, all of a sudden, all these little threads are starting to draw for me from this game to Black Desert. I just keep thinking about that one with like their nodes and their different farming systems and the amount of depth they have to their game. So I guess, I don't know, for you as someone who likes MMORPGs, for someone who's making a game like this in this industry, kind of, do you have any take on that game or, or no? You're actually the second person to call it out, but I've never heard of it before those callouts. Our inspiration is very mu- is very clear. It's uh, the original RuneScape classic from 2001. Okay. The little wonky system with 2D sprites and characters walking around in a Java-based environment. Uh, there's definitely a lot of their games that have had similar uh, premises, have similar goals in mind. I think Black Desert is more of an action uh, envir- action game, if I remember correctly. I would say so, yeah. So one of the things that we're basically keeping in mind is we want to make it so that the game is very simple to interact with and doesn't require much of the player. Yeah. Uh, so even things like gamepad controls or WASD, mo- WASD movement and things like that, we're making it simple. The entire game can be interacted with just a mouse. Mm. So you click on where to go, you click on the tree in the game, you uh, click on the crafting recipe that you want to use. We are expecting to expand to mobile eventually. Mm-hmm. So a large part of the game design is actually part of that is if you're on a phone and you're just t- tapping things, how does that work? And how do you make a game that where it works and players can play together with people on uh, computers and people on the phone, both interacting with the same world, with the same environments? Kind of, is there something within your title that you want to key in on that we kind of skimmed over or we missed entirely something that you feel is like very important to be to be talked about so when i mentioned the four areas that we really consider crucial when trying to sell the game mm-hmm. uh is basically uh the nostalgia aspect which we covered pretty well the broad appeal aspect of trying to make it so that it's a casual mmo for players who wouldn't otherwise touch an mmo and the relaxing aspect the fourth aspect being the weekly updates the always changing world the other aspect that we didn't really get a chance to cover is the humor uh, a large part of the game is built around the meta story of basically the cliche corporation the corporation for licensing heroics is an in-game corporation which is basically equivalent to all of the large corporations uh, in the real world but with a comedic bent and they're basically trying to manage adventures and the player is just one of those adventures and we have a lot of fun asking with those concepts and being like, okay, the tutorial that all players go through, well, it's actually a boot camp for new adventures. Adventures are kind of this blight on the land because if you think of a video game RPG character, they go through and they just go into someone's house randomly and they open their treasure chest and they get this item. Mm -hmm. Then there's a speedrunner that wants to find the best path through the world and they just end up blasting through the family who's having dinner mm-hmm. then there's someone who loves cosmetics but then the cosmetic explodes uh, or doesn't do what they want and we've had a lot of fun just playing with those concepts playing with the concept of a cliche corporation that's actually trying to wrangle ventures that's trying to not be a force for good also not be better than the alternative we can use this and we can and do use this to speak about trends and speak about uh concerning things both in the real world and in the games industry as well we definitely use the cliche corporation soapbox to basically make fun of different monetization strategies, different cosmetics, uh, NFTs, things like that. And we're trying to take that and we're trying to build that into the game world as well to make the cliche corporation actually be a force in the game that players interact with and play with. You know, that's actually a pretty good segue because I one of the questions I like throwing at developers um, is a somewhat broader one, right? Because in the industry as a whole right now, we whether it's indie or whether it's AAA, I think there's been a lot of change over the last decade, to say the least. Um, I think there's a lot of positive things that have happened in the industry. I think there's a lot of good things that are going on. However, I think there are some negative aspects to it. Maybe that's just the inner pessimist in me, but I think there are some things that are not addressed as much as they should be that are unfortunate. Um, For you specifically, I think is there something within the industry right now, whether, you know, I, and I'll leave this completely open, is there, whether it's indie or AAA, is there something you see as a negative aspect that needs change, something that needs tweaks? Kind of talk to me about that really quick. Uh, I'll actually give you two sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first off, 
your bent is more slightly more pessimistic. I'm personally a pessimist at heart, <laughs> so I definitely see all the negatives that you're doing. But one thing to keep in mind is the bar to entry of building video games is so much lower than it used to be. Anyone in their home can go and build by themselves a game that can be played by hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of players across the world. That is an amazing equalizer. Yes, most of those games will be crap because most of everything is crap. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone can go and record music. Most people will be really, really, really bad at it. <laughs> anyone can now make video games. Most people will still be bad at it. But that is an amazing thing. And it means that there are voices out there that we will hear that couldn't have made uh, video games, couldn't have made art before. Mm -hmm. That said, the negative side of the coin is the established companies. There are a lot of, the, a lot of them that are in it for more profit than art. Uh, is that good? No. Is that necessarily a bad thing? Not really. But it, it does mean that a lot of the innovation can't happen. So I would I would insert here really quickly to get your take on it. I think with AAA games, it's interesting because I think their bottom line is ultimately extremely important to them. As you mentioned, you know, it's all about the money, which is not necessarily it, it is what it is, right? It, it's just one of those things nowadays. However, with AAA games, it's almost like, let's take, I guess, with Call of Duty, for an example. I think the developers behind that game, for having this game being made so long, you know, it's been being made, I don't know, for almost a decade at this point. Like, it's a very, it's a game that's been in the industry for a long time. And I think that Call of Duty over the years, Treyarch, Activision, they have, Sledgehammer, all of the developers have tried to implement different changes to their title. But what I always love to say is... Players love change until they get it and then they hate it. And I think it's like one of those weird things where like it's a really good part of the indie world because I think you can take more risks and you can do more things and you can have that more outlandish concept that works really well because there isn't that like built up expectation, right? And I think that's something where it's like it is like you'd mentioned. It's like this double-edged sword where I think AAA companies may want to be more interesting and risky and make these more bold choices with their games but i almost don't think they can anymore because it would impact them too negatively from that dollars and cents kind of side of things i don't know i think you're you're also making a overarching argument uh the corporations don't want anything it's all built up of people who all have different wants and needs yeah there are many many people at AAA companies that want to do something different yeah but your example of call of duty and Absolutely right. Developers of that game can't make big changes because they have a significant audience that know what they want and have been getting what they want for a long time. Fundamentally, if you wanted to build a different experience, you would want to target a different market, someone who's not as well known. You're absolutely right. Indies can do more of that. It's also the fact that indies is more difficult to stand out as an indie and because there's so much uh, going on that there's so much being released at this time yeah. marketing is significantly more important and someone who's a good creator is not necessarily a good marketer and vice versa which does mean that even if something really really good is built up uh, it might take a long time or it might never be found one thing that comes to mind for me and obviously this is a more this is a more business side of things um for you uh, you guys don't have a publisher, correct? Oh, we do not currently have a publisher. Am I allowed to ask if you're looking for one or? We're not necessarily against uh, a publishing contract. Uh, we're, uh, or I personally like the freedom of doing whatever I feel is best as a creative uh, person. I like not being told what to do. I like not having specific requirements on it. Yeah. Uh, that said, I am not an expert in everything. In fact, I am much worse at more things than I am good at. I think so, that goes for all of us. <laughs> so finding a finding someone to partner with, finding someone uh, to work with to make the game the best it is has always been priority, but it requires finding someone who you work with well, and that's you can't rush that. Yeah, no, that yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, so in terms of kind of where gaming is going over the next decade, the next like I don't know, the next implementation like that's going to really change how you look at games how you enjoy them kind of that kind of thing so what would you see as kind of 
the next big step in the industry, right? Whether it's esports, uh, augmented reality, uh, the metaverse is, I don't know, I, I guess the metaverse is kind of a big deal, right? Uh, so first off, I will caveat with, if you look at all of the big changes that have happened yeah. in gaming over the past, let's say, three to four decades, absolutely none of them have really been predicted. Uh, if you look at, for example, like viral hits in gaming, mm-hmm. every single one was something that was completely related to the previous one. So, like, for example, most recent uh, viral craze in gaming was Wordle, uh, which was basically uh, a simple uh, letter-guessing game, but the clever thing they did was they encouraged everyone to share their results, which made it go viral. Before that, some things were things like Flappy Bird, which was a completely simple game concept it was the same helicopter game we played 20 years ago in a browser just with a new app that everyone could install and download yeah uh that just went viral for for some reason uh <laughs> I, many many people smarter than me have researched and tried to figure out exactly what the cause was i don't think anyone has reached a consensus yet right. it was in the right place at the right time another one was uh of course among us which actually launched in 2019 to basically very little fanfare. A few people of deduction games were interested, were amused. And then something happened uh, in 2021. Part of it was the pandemic, part of it was not. What do those three games have in common? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing, (laughs) exactly. So in terms of trends uh, that gaming has happened, uh, you mentioned esports. I actually think that's actually a bit of a downtrend. Uh, It was really big. Uh, when League of Legends came out, uh, when uh, Dodo was big, or some other games that had competitive communities. But esports is really not, in my mind, esports is not getting bigger. It has already had its time in the limelight. It's Really? You don't think so? Yeah, I just don't feel like that's something to invest in. That's something that is going to go big again. I think it's already happened. I, I'm not saying that competitive games aren't a thing. I'm not saying that uh, watching professionals play games is a thing. Yeah. But esports specifically, of like things like people going in and going to the international of Dota and having millions of players, millions of people watching these two people make a game. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's going to be happening very much more. Uh, I think right now we're in a big streaming phenomena. Yeah. Everyone is streaming. Lots of people are streaming. There's all sorts of streaming events. Companies are trying to market using streamers. Uh, streamers are trying to market themselves and influencers, of course, on Instagram, on YouTube, uh, watching themselves game. Uh, that's probably the big industry curve that's happening now. I don't know whether it's going to last. Uh, Obviously, people are going to continue streaming for a long time. People are going to make money streaming for a long time. I don't know whether that's the long term. You know, it's interesting. Somebody I was talking to recently said we were talking about streaming and influencers and kind of their impact on the industry as a whole. And their take was, if everyone's opinion matters, nobody's opinion matters anymore. And that's kind of the take on streaming and influencers, things like that. And it's interesting. That's a very interesting conclusion, but I would disagree with that because the whole premise of streaming and influencers is that everyone's opinion doesn't matter. Mm. What matters is how many followers you have. Oh, and the opinion okay. of the people with the most followers matters. That's a good take on it. That's, that's the caveat right there. You found it. There's always going to be a ninja or whoever the new ninja replacement is. Uh, There's always going to be someone who's at the top of the heap and they're always going to have a significantly outsized voice because of it. Uh, It's the same. It's the same premise of celebrities just taken to the digital age. And there's a lot of people who are rediscovering things in a new context. Like, not going to go on my crypto rant right now, uh, but... I was going to ask you what... Because you don't you don't like NFTs, I can tell. And I am not... I'm not going to say I'm not a fan of them. I just don't really... I try to not interact with them as much as I can, to be honest. Uh, that's basically it. Because it's unregulated. It's the Wild West. It's... I don't know. It's a... uh, In terms of what the next step is, augmented reality has a chance. Uh, the technology isn't there yet. If you're familiar with the black problem, basically. Uh, So there's two different types of augmented reality. The first one is uh, something that sits in front of your eye, like Google Glass, Mm -hmm. which renders. The problem with that is you basically uh, overlay over what you're seeing. So you can draw light to it, but you can't make anything darker. So you can't make something appear that doesn't look virtual. The other approach is, of course, you wear a full headset and the headset renders what you see. And that has the input lag and uh, visual delay that is... Not solved yet. Can it be solved? 
possibly, but there's some aspects of physics that you're running into that make it very difficult. Augmented reality, if they figure out the tech, could happen. Uh, metaverse, Facebook was not the one doing it, <laughs> could. There's all sorts of stories about a virtual world and about a corporation and cyberpunk and things like that. Yeah. Some of those could happen. I uh, honestly, what I, I think what the next big step in gaming is going to be, COVID ever stops being a problem, uh, it's going to be a rejection of uh, the virtual world. It's going to be moving back into reality. Like single player kind of uh, style stuff and like moving away from that. Oh, no, like moving away from people sitting behind computers and moving and uh, going back to people okay. uh, talking to each other. And there's going to be some sort of killer app, some sort of way for companies to monetize that. It's, it's not going to be a game. It's not going to be something that it's not going to be an app that people download that everyone downloads that they play. Mm-hmm. It's going to be something different. I got to ask. What's your take on something like TikTok right now? Because it's viral, it's everywhere. Do you think it's something that'll last a long time? Do you think it's something that's... Uh, it's, 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 another, it's another social media influencer platform. They come and go. Uh, TikTok is big. Is it TikTok big? Yes. What is the biggest threat to TikTok? The government. Just like uh, Facebook. Uh, no kid uses Facebook these days. It's going to be the same thing for TikTok. In 15 years from now, Everyone's going to be like, oh, TikTok, that's, a, that's the thing that my parents were on. It'll be the MySpace of its time, yeah. Okay. Facebook is now the MySpace of its time. It's true, yeah. Um, Social media goes so fast, you know? I mean... I think that's something that people have learned. They haven't internalized it yet. Social media stops becoming fun once your parents are on it. <laughs> that, that is the exact wave that killed every single past social media. Facebook started with college people uh, being around with other college people, and then it expanded to everyone, and then everyone left. Yeah. Uh, TikTok started with uh, parents not understanding it. I'm sure in a year from now, there's going to be a wave of like parents recording things. And it's already kind of happening, to be honest. There's already parents yep. getting on there. So yeah, you are right. It's kind of like Vine. It was hot for a second, and then it was gone. TikTok used to be Musical.ly, and then that got rebranded. And yeah, Mixer is gone Twitter, now. Twitter had its time in the sun. Twitter Spaces had its time in the sun, yep. but not really. What is the next big thing? I would actually say, uh, if you force me to make a prediction, I would pick something that is no one else is predicting right now, which means it has a low chance of happening, but it will make me really smart if someone comes back to this interview 10 years from now. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a resurgence of board games. It's interesting. People are creating board games and making them more like they're trying to make board games just like almost video game equivalent, where it's like this experience and it's flashy and it's different and it's like this engaging thing. And like board games are different now than they were when I was a kid, that's for sure. Something as viral as Cards Against Humanity. There's a lot of board games that are are being too clever for what they are trying to be. Cards Against Humanity was a perfect example of what I'm thinking of. It's something that is completely social it's a thing that forces people to come together and play but the actual creators of cards against humanity didn't really build much of that excitement they built the framework they set up the cards in fact they actually gave their game away anyone could print it try to get the excitement going it's interesting because i think like you'd mentioned down the road and even right now and even years and years ago, I think the driving factor behind any experience is always, you know, interaction with other people. That's what makes it enjoyable. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes people really get sucked into something like that. That's why like apps or like stupid games, like, I don't know, like random. Like the bird. Yeah, like the, what made it fun was like, you could talk about it with your friends and like rage about it and all that shit. Like it was just like those little things. And I think that's what's most important in in every industry across the board is that like interaction and that like being that ability to relate and talk to other people about it you know that's That's, never that's what happened to wordle wordle succeeded because it got people talking to each other about it and it made people feel like they were missing out by not doing it exactly that wave is basically over uh it was interesting to watch the beginnings the continuations and now pretty much every discord i'm in that had a wordle group is gone. Uh, people have stopped doing it. Yeah. Uh, people lost their streaks, lost interest, and so on. All right. Well, I guess the only other question I have before we kind of wrap things up is, so what does your content schedule look like moving into the fall? Kind of release date-wise, content calendar, everything above, kind of what's that look like for you? So by the time this uh, interview goes live, uh, we are expecting to have announced the release date. Uh, so we are launching this year. For players to actually start and 
create their characters and play around in the world with a relatively limited self-contained area, which is basically the what was in the beta, mm -hmm. uh, with a few improvements, with a few quality of life changes on top of that. And we're planning to start the start the release calendar rolling of every week one new update, uh, whether that be new con new content balances. Uh, new expansions, new things to do every week. The clockwork. Uh, we have plans for first couple of months of what those updates are going to look like. So we're going to obviously we're going to have the October month be the spooky Halloween themed updates. It's got to uh, be right. Uh, the winter months are going to be holiday themed with snow and such. We're planning a new skill uh, to release in January and. Basically, the further out we go, the less certain we are of what we want to build. Yeah. But we have a lot of ideas and we have a lot of things that we want to do. Well, I'm excited because this game seems like there's a lot of different possibilities for it. And I, I feel very good about that. So I can't wait to see what's on the way, man.